Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comments section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. I wanted to just uh, give a little update on the channel, uh, as I usually do for my shows here. We had a really great podcast post yesterday, and uh, I would really like you guys to check that out. It was a very interesting conversation about faith, losing faith, crisis of faith, and, and atheism, and maybe not getting such a warm reception in the atheist world, and you know, some, some discussion about that, And because uh, I don't think that's really so such a good idea. Um, for atheists to be doing, in other words. And um, anyway, we had a really nice, nice uh, talk this week about that on the on the podcast. And uh, for those of you who are wondering, uh, the Scientology Basics series is rolling forward. In fact, I've done a tremendous amount of work on it this week. Uh, this next uh, episode, that the first one I'm planning on doing here, is going to be on study tech. And I'm hoping to get that done this week, um, but there are a couple factors that are beyond my control scheduling-wise to make that happen. Uh, so it might be pushed forward to the week after that, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. But definitely you guys are going to get a very good... Uh, review on that subject uh, with this video. So anyway, that'll be coming soon. And now let's go ahead and get on with your questions. Here we go. A.R. Struble 1. How many people do you think join the Sea Org annually? With technology and info at our fingertips, how has the Sea Org changed their recruitment from 30 years ago? I did see your podcast on recruitment tactics. Based on all of that, would you say most of the recruits are youth raised in Scientology? I would think recruiting a young adult with no real-world background would be difficult unless they were back down on their luck, no family, destitute, etc., and they saw a place for food and shelter, then the brainwashing could easily take effect. Okay, so I ran some numbers uh, sort of looking at you know how many Sea Org bases there are and how many recruiters there are and how much work they're doing and how, uh, you know, from what I remembered as well of how many recruits would come in on a week-to-week -week basis. And basically, I think, um, you know, I'm sort of guesstimating that it's about 500 people a year get recruited into the Sea Org worldwide. Um, it might, be, might sound a little high, but, um, you know, you have 52 weeks, you got five Sea Org bases recruiting full-time. Um, I think that's, you know, maybe maybe shooting a little low, actually, but the attrition rate is uh, higher or as high, you know, or around that same amount. Um, now, I can't, you know, swear on that to on a stack of Dianetics books or something, but I can say that they lose a lot of people and that the Sea Org has not been, a, 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 you know, voluminously growing, exponentially expanding organization. Uh, over all these years, right? They were at around, we guesstimated, I, I estimated about 5,000 people and back in 2012 when I left. And I think in the last five years, they probably lost more than they've gained. So that's, you know, kind of numbers wise, I think that's where it's at. Now, I think you might have a bit of a skewed view from the wording of your question as to how recruitment gets done and who gets targeted for recruitment for the Sea Org. Um, they really go after the children of Scientologists. They go after young people. There are few reasons for that. It didn't wasn't wasn't always that way. And I think uh, in terms of how it's changed over the last thirty years, I think we've seen more of a focus on younger people. And by younger, I mean upper teens, early twenties, um, generally speaking, uh, people who are not in college, don't have student loans, aren't professionally practicing. Uh, you know, highly skilled labor, like those are the guys you really want to get in the Sea Org these days. It used to be different. 
um, in that they would go after, you know, professionals, trained adults, this sort of thing. But, but the logistics of getting into the Sea Org are rough. I mean, you got to find people who can, you know, if they have a house, they're going to sell it. If they have a car, they're probably going to sell it. Uh, they can't have, you know, little babies and stuff, right? I mean, especially now. I mean, over the last 20 years or so, it's just been on, on that for the most part. For the most part. There's always exceptions. But that's kind of how that rolls. And, um, you know, so you want you want to get people. SeaWorld recruiters are constantly being hit up every week for new recruits. It's really unacceptable as a recruiter to have a big goose egg on your statistic for the week, right? Have not having any recruits. That is that's going to get you in trouble. So they've got to go after the people they can, you know, they can develop these these recruitment prospects and make them happen quickly. That's it's always about now now now, speed speed speed. Got to got to got to. And so you'll get and that's another reason why the young demographic is the one to go after. Uh, and you can, you know, especially so you, you'll, they'll go after kids who are in Scientology schools up in Delphi, Oregon, Delphi, LA, uh, whatever that Clearwater Academy was. Those are all private schools. Seward recruiters would go around there all the time to get the, the second gen, third gen uh, kids, right? Uh, another source is a staff of Scientology organizations who are not yet in the Sea Org, right? Who are, you know, that's sort of I've explained before. You have public staff Sea Org. So that's how I got into the Sea Org. And uh, when I was doing recruitment for the Sea Org, I recruited for a year. And I got 11 people into the Sea Org in that time. It was about once, one a month. And I'd be sent out to these locations like Seattle, P Portland, Twin Cities. And I would uh, find a staff member who either already wanted to come or had been thinking about it, and I'd sit them down and I'd work them over and I'd recruit them. And then I would find somebody to replace them and I'd send them on up to the Sea Org. So that was my that was how I was operating as a Sea Org recruiter and, and on my on my recruitment projects. And I was considered very successful. That year was a was a great year for you know for somebody guy to go out and, and get all those people into the Sea Org who I, I was not a recruiter that that wasn't my job, but I was on this special these these series of projects to do that right, and it was in the as far as methods of recruitment, uh, it's always been about promoting the uh, Hubbard Hubbard said promote the charisma of the Sea Org. You know, you, you always, the uniforms and the prestige and the, the eliteness of it, it's kind of like, you know, the same in the military, they talk about, you know, that, and promote the special forces and the Green Berets and the, you know, these guys, right? Uh, the, the, the special, highly, highly trained guys, the Rangers and, and those guys. Uh, you know, hardly anybody, I think, joins the military so that they can go be an infantryman. You know, they always have these, these ideas of grandeur, right, going into this stuff. Uh, and of course, you can create that with young people easier than you can with older people. So the Sea Org was sort of the same approach. And it was a guy named Brandon Faust who developed that, that briefing that I gave a whole video about, uh, where we get into the conspiracy theories and all of the crazy, you know, world, global, you know, 12 men ruling the world thing and how the Sea Org has to save the planet. That all came in in the 1990s, late 90s, and through the 2000s. So that's kind of when that method became a thing. But that never fully replaced this other thing of just pushing, you know, people to join. Always, 
almost always, I mean 99.9% .9 of the time, Sea Org recruiters are going after Scientologists. They, you don't want somebody coming in the Sea Org who doesn't truly believe, truly, you know, think that L. Ron Hubbard's the cat's meow, think that Scientology is absolutely the shit, you know, like that's, that's the person you're trying to get into the Sea Org because you're literally talking about dedicating the rest of your life to something. And that's a big commitment. And everybody, you know, who comes in the Sea Org uh, has some concept that that's what they're doing. Nobody gets recruited into the Sea Org on the idea that they're only going to be there for a few years and then they're going to take off. That is no part of the conversation ever. It is lifelong commitment, billion-year contract, you're on board, and you're going you're gonna to join and you're going to die here. You know, that's kind of the, the attitude. So... I don't know. I think that's a, a pretty good, you know, all-around take on on how that whole thing breaks down. Telecon. Are you familiar with John Alex Wood, Scientology's official UK Twitter troll? Is he most likely being paid for his advocacy work? He's one of the very few people who publicly defend the Church of Scientology on Twitter. Oh yeah, good old John Alex Wood and his girlfriend uh, Gemma. Uh, I actually had a run-in with them last week on Twitter. Uh, not, not common because I'm, I'm on Twitter, but I don't generally go in their direction or try to engage. And at this point I've blocked them from my channel. They can't see what I'm doing on Twitter, uh, my Twitter channel or my Twitter feed anymore. Um, because they, they kind of came, you know, Gemma was taking some swipes at me, um, uh, because I engaged with somebody that they're connected with last week, uh, this woman, Kayla, trying to you know, just sort of do what I've mentioned in past videos of plant some seeds, throw some things in her direction. And there was this great article on Tony Ortega's blog last week to do that with about uh, how Scientology is being funded by Big Pharma. And a great article. And I immediately tweeted it out to this woman, Kayla. Uh, and then we, you know, shenanigans ensued. And uh, then behind the scenes, I think John and, and Gemma got on and started coaching her because I was starting to make an inroad to her, to her thinking. And then it kind of all went south and she just kind of went, you know, bleh. And I think that was because of their influence. And I called out Gemma on Twitter for, you know, taking advantage of that woman that way because it was really, really pretty gross, uh, you know, that they do that. Um, so anyway, you can check out my Twitter feed for that whole thing. But as far as John Alex Wood goes, I never met the guy. I don't know him. Um, I'd barely recognize him in real life, you know, if I, if I were to meet him. And I don't particularly think I would like the guy, of course. He, um, I have spoken with a couple people who interacted with him and knew him. And um, they didn't particularly have anything great to say about the guy. But, you know, I don't know. Uh, is he being paid to do that work? Um, I don't know. I can't actually speak to that. Uh, it's very possible, you know, it's not beyond the bounds of reason to think that Osa could be paying him. Uh, his girlfriend, Gemma, who he met through a Scientology dating site that apparently is Monty Python themed, uh, was not a Scientologist when they first hooked up and, and she went from zero to 100, man. She jumped in there and she decided that Scientology is the shit and she decided that she was going to get on Twitter with him and give people a hard time and, and, uh, and you know, tweet out nasty things to people like me who are trying to simply talk truth about Scientology. And, you know, so it all just becomes sort of this big bait fest on Twitter. And it's, you know, Twitter is already the sort of the sewer of the Internet in so many ways. So uh, it's not hard for them to, to it, it, it's sort of natural really for, for them to find a home there, uh, John and Gemma, you know. Um, but anyway, 
you know, I, I can't really speak too much more about the guy because I've never met him. But, you know, if you think about what kind of person would you, would you need to be in order to volunteer, and you would have to have OSA approval to do this, there's no way that any Scientologist in good standing would, would be able to go on Twitter or go onto YouTube or go anywhere on social media and start engaging with suppressive people like me uh, unless they were church sanctioned to do so. So what kind of person would it take to have the initiative to get okay from the church to do that and then proceed to do it, right? That kind of answers the question of, of what's the guy like, right? He's a, you know, it is, he is what he is. So that's what I have to say about that. Take five breaths. Something I've been meaning to ask you. Is it true that OT8 can only be obtained while trapped on their ship? And while getting OT8, these Scientologists are constantly wedged between sessions. If it's true, what are the registrars selling people who have reached OT8? Haven't they already paid for every course and bit of text Scientology has to offer in order to get to the OT8 level? Okay, thanks for asking this because this has uh, shown uh, some points here that need to be, you know, filled in uh, that are, I guess, maybe, you know, not widely understood. So let's go ahead and get into this. No, you do not have to have done everything in order to get up to OT8. There is in Scientology this thing called the Bridge to Total Freedom, and it is a chart, and it has the auditing side and the training side of Scientology services. But that chart does not show every single service that Scientology offers, or at least you don't have to, all those services aren't on those step-by-step those -step progression as you move on up the line. Uh, and we'll talk about some specifics of that in a minute. So you can go up the auditing side of that bridge where you start at the purification rundown, objectives, grade 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, clear, OT 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. You can do all those services without really getting over on the training side very much or very high. There's a couple lower level training services that everybody's kind of required to do, but after that, you don't have to become an auditor in Scientology in order to go up to OT8. So when you get to OT8 and they've sold you all the auditing they can sell you, you bet they're going to try to sell you that training. They're going to try to sell you all the materials. They're going to try to sell you services that are not on that grade chart that, you, that, you, that are auditing services also. For example, a thing called superpower, right? Which uh, is this you know, series of, of rundowns or actions that you do at that great big huge monstrosity of a building that they built in Clearwater. You also have something called the cause resurgence rundown, which happens on the top floor of that big monstrous building that they built. And that, is, that consists of running around a pole in the dark for hours at a time. Right, the pole's lit up and you run around this track and, and it's supposed to cause some sort of spiritual resurgence and experience for you. And so, of course, after running around a pole, uh, you know, I'm sure you're in a brilliant trance-like state and you're running around in the dark and you're getting physically exhausted and probably mentally exhausted too until you, you know, have some awesome resurgence and then this is interpreted as this wonderful spiritual experience. So uh, that is called the cause resurgence rundown and this couple thousand bucks for the privilege of doing that. So those things they can sell you. There are also, uh, you're right, that the only place you can do OT8 is on this ship and the ship is called the Free Winds and it sails around down in uh, Aruba, Karu, you know, the, that the ABC Islands. Um, 
the St. Bart's and and uh, what's the, the Curacao, yeah, the ABC Islands. So there, it sails around down there in the Mediterranean, and um, and there are courses that are offered on the free winds that you can do when you're not in session doing your OT8. Uh, and they'll try to sell you the full gamut of those services, and they have a couple other things they do there. Um, but mainly it's OT8. That's the main reason that ship was purchased and, and is sailing around. So uh, the main thing that they are regging you for when you're on the ship is not for services, though. The main thing that they're regging you for is trying to, trying to get you to donate money to is just straight donations to the International Association of Scientologists, uh, the IAS. It's a Scientology's membership group, and it's just a flat-out money grab. That's all it is. And you get status levels. That's your, it's, that's your return on investment for giving money to the IAS is you get a label, you get a status. Right, patron, patron meritorious, patron goratorious, patron platinum, patron, you know, dragonostus. I mean, it's whatever, right? Uh, and that's just money that you're basically burning. You're just throwing it away because when you give money to the IAS, you have no idea where it's going. You have no idea what it's going to be used for. And you just basically on faith taking that David Miscavige and the church are going to use that money constructively to you know, do disaster relief, to provide illiteracy programs, to bring, you know, the Scientology's anti-drug program education and Narconon to get people off drugs and all this. None of these things work. They're all ridiculous. And very little IS money even goes to those things in the first place. Uh, you know, but I, I, there are IAS grants that will be given to these groups, but for the most part, the money is just is gathered up and I don't really know where it goes. So the only person who really does is David Miscavige and some select people at the upper levels of Scientology. So certainly are not transparent. There's no transparency to the donors or the parishioners and no reporting ever on where that money goes. So, you know, Scientologists are taking a major leap of faith in giving money to the IAS. And when you're a captive audience on the free winds where you literally cannot go anywhere else and they can track you down to your cabin uh, or to the dining room or wherever you're going to be on the ship, then they have you and they will reg you. They will work you over for hours at a time uh, on a nearly daily basis. And that is one of the reasons why a lot of people really got fed up with uh, Scientology and with ever going to the free winds because they knew that that was going to be the environment they were going to be in. No Scientologist enjoys that. And a lot of them just pull the plug and hit the eject button at that point because they just can't take the crap anymore. So anyway, that is how that all works. Glory Pacheca. I read on the bunker that David Miscavige has not lived at or even visited Int Base in five years. I think this could be a move suggested by lawyers to help build a case that he could not have orchestrated various abuses that have come to light at that location. What do you think this means, Chris, that David Miscavige lives in California now full-time and part-time in Clearwater. I think you could be partially right. I think that there are other reasons that he has not been to the Int base in four or five years as well. Uh, my take on it is uh, purely, you know, subjective, just guesswork here. I don't do this a lot in terms of throwing out my my uh, guesswork on something, like just totally out of like whole cloth here. But here's what I'm thinking is happening. I think that David Miscavige has been sick and tired of the people at the international base. And this is the gold base or international base or int management base or whatever else you want to call it in San Jacinto, California, up in uh, a little town called Hemet. So it's just off of there. 
This is where they have the barbed wire, you know, going both ways and they have it all fenced in. It's this great big beautiful compound. Uh, very well kept up, but uh, a prison, right? It's not a not a not an easy place to get out of. And people who have left there have said that they escaped. That's how they got out of there. So, uh, so this place is not exactly paradise on earth. And since about 1999 or 2000, Miscavige has really been coming down on those people hard, like really laying on uh, the the hammer. And um, and can and and I believe that he really thinks that everybody there is working against him. And he is like in this state of mind that, that especially the management people there are uh, just a bunch of suppressive people. Can't be trusted, can't be utilized, have to be very, very closely watched. They have to constantly be berated. They have to be constantly confessing their sins and crimes. And, and he, just, he just works these guys over and works them over and abuses and abuses and abuses them. Um, this is, like I said, especially true of the executives and the management type people who are there. But no one's immune from his wrath. So the, the bulk of the people who are at the gold base or the international base are Golden Era Productions staff. There's a few different organizations that exist on the base. Golden Era Productions is the main one. That's, they've got state-of-the-art, top-of-the-line audiovisual equipment, a sound studio, stages or sound sound recording studios a, a you know a, a big uh, shooting studio i mean it, it's it's a real production facility up there and then you have international management people and then you have uh, the cmo you have rtc so you've got another smaller group of people maybe a hundred i'm guessing in the management end of things right all those other things and then you got a few hundred people maybe four or five hundred people who are making up, uh, and that's at most, I mean it could be a lot less than that, maybe five hundred people total, but uh, who are making up Golden Era Productions. So uh, so now what have we seen in the last couple of years? We've seen that Miscavige, uh, we've seen that the, uh, the exposure of the human rights abuses and, and beatings and various things that have been going on up there started, the word started coming out on that in the mid-2000s. And that was a huge, huge, you know, PR nightmare for the Church of Scientology. And of course, that just infuriated Miscavige even more that people would be coming out and exposing his own crimes. So he, he wasn't down with that. And that probably got him into a frame of mind that no one at this base could be trusted because any of them could want to leave at any time and they'd have to get paid off and they have to readjust how they're going to, you know, get rid of people because when they were getting rid of Mark Headley or when Marty Rathbun blew or Mike Rinder blew, you know, they were, they were just taken off. So now what I understand they're doing is they're actually paying big bucks to people who are leaving to sign non-disclosure agreements that actually have teeth. And so they, when they leave, they can't really talk. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm sort of gathering from what's happening these days, which is why you're not hearing a lot about people who are taken off from there. It's not that people aren't taken off. It's just you're not, you're not hearing about it that way. So, um, so Miscavige is now like, well, I can't, you know, he was exposed. Now he can't trust these people to keep their mouths shut. And he doesn't trust them to do their jobs. He doesn't trust them to, to, to forward Scientology. So... 
he just was like, okay, I'm washing my hands of this place. And he goes over to Clearwater or he goes over to any one of his multiple other places he can live in the world. He's got uh, apartments and setups in, in Los Angeles and a few places and Paris and England and, you know, Europe. I mean, and the guy's got enough money he can purchase whatever sort of palatial estate he really wants, actually. I mean, he could do a whole Joel Austin if he really wanted to. Uh, he kind of already has, but you know, now that he's not going to the gold base, he can go to these other places. So, um, so he's probably just said, okay, I'm washing my hands of this place. You guys just figure it out for yourselves. Then the other thing that's happened fairly recently is the KCET studios were purchased and renovated at great expense, millions of dollars sunk into it. And a lot of us were sitting there watching that happen going, why are they doing that? Because they've got the same production facilities already created up at Gold Base. Yet we have this thing of Miscavige doesn't trust any of those people and blah, 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 blah. So if he wanted to, he could have purchased the KCET studio with the idea of shutting gold down and moving a lot of those people down to case those that new Scientology media productions. I shouldn't call it the KCET studio because they've now it's Scientologized and it's the Scientology media productions or SUMP. Uh, facility. And so he could bring those technically trained AV professionals from gold down to sump and stick them there and transfer all the functions, right? And one idea that I've talked about with some others with, with no basis in like, you know, nobody's heard that this is happening. No one's thinking this is a foregone conclusion, but it certainly could be that Miscavige could eventually just shut down the gold base entirely. Just close it all off, transfer all of its personnel to other places in the world where they can do those same functions or do different ones because the Sea Org is very... When you're in the Sea Org, you never know what you're going to be doing from one day to the next. You could be a senior executive one day, janitor the next. So they could easily move all those gold people to L.A. They could move the management people to L.A. to the... the there's a... Uh, 12-story uh, building in, on Hollywood Boulevard called the Hollywood Guarantee Building, which is the upper middle management of fun functions of Scientology all happen in that building. There's plenty of room in that building for another 100 people if they wanted to bring all those management people from the gold base and make the HGB the international management headquarters, which it kind of already is now since they're really not doing a whole lot of management from the gold base. So... They could just move those people there or they could, you know, ship them off to Australia or Canada, Europe, wherever, you know, wherever, you know, some of those people would end up going where Miscavige would never have to have his eyes on them again, right? That's something Scientology does, which is why Shelley Miscavige has been disappeared for so many years. So all of that is just, like I said, supposition on my part, but maybe that's what's happening up there. Andy Lesser. In the years after you've been out of Scientology, have you ever found yourself experiencing the feeling of euphoria that you experienced when going clear about something unrelated to Scientology? If so, did your critical brain step in and question the reason for such feelings? I imagine your recent engagement to Melissa would produce some euphoria, but I'm speaking about something related to discovering different philosophies or ideologies or even getting better at critical thinking itself. I could imagine after having such a bad experience with euphoria generated by undue influence and manipulation, you might be skeptical of anything that felt similar. 
Thanks, Andy. Great question. And um, no, I actually experience uh, that kind of um, euphoria or, or you know, uh, great feeling, you know, all the time. And here's how it works. Um, I'm not backed off from or, or afraid of it or feeling like it's got a bad rap to feel really great or feel really invigorated or alive because of past experiences in Scientology. I, I've, I've, I've separated out, you know, what caused that and what causes this enough that I'm very comfortable with, with feeling, you know, great in life. And the thing that, it, well, here's the thing. I am a writer before I'm anything else. That's what I always thought was, uh, you know, since I've been doing this, this channel and doing my work here, I've always thought of myself as, as that first. And of course, I write my videos before I shoot them and, and put them out to you guys. And I've written, a, I've written a book. I've got, you know, more stuff in the, in the uh, hopper, so to speak. So writing creates that with me when I am really on, when I am like in touch with the muse and inspired and, and just, you know, just pounding it out right here, you know, I just sit here and just researching and writing and putting it all together. Sometimes I just feel so inspired and so on with what I'm doing. And that is a great, great feeling. It is really nice to, um, to be in the, in the, in the groove, you know what I mean? Uh, and that's, and that's kind of, you know, how I would describe that. And, it, and when I finish writing something like that, you know, and you get that like, oh, this is just the best, you know, kind of feeling, um, it's, it's monumental, you know, it just feels really good. And after that comes producing the video, creating, um, you know, that kind of creation also can really get me going sometimes. Uh, and then you put it out there and people start responding to it and I get some really nice feedback. The feedback doesn't really create that for me. You know, it's really great to hear from you guys. I love it. I don't mean to demean it or anything or make it seem like you guys giving me positive feedback doesn't mean anything because it does. But it's, um, but it's not the same as the creation part of it, right? That is where I feel more alive than anything else that I'm, that I'm really doing. So, uh, so I've had that happen all kinds of times. And it's the kind of thing that I know I am uh, very lucky to be able to do that for a living. And I know that I've got some, you know, some degree of skill and ability in that area. Uh, so it's, so it, you know, it just seems like the right thing for me to be doing. And, uh, and of course, with your guys' support, I'm able to do this for a living. And I, you know, and I, I hope that, you know, more people out there can do for, for themselves what they, what, what makes that happen for them, you know, because I know it's, it's really kind of sucky that a lot of people have to go to a nine to five and, and they don't enjoy it. They don't ever get any euphoria or, or feelings of satisfaction or, or happiness from what they're doing. And I just, God, I just really think that sucks. Um, and of course I can relate cause that's, you know, cause I had my own time of doing that for quite a few years. So anyway, that's, um, what I can say about that for now. And that is our brand new Flash Answers introduction. Uh, so I am now going to give you ridiculously short answers to some really good questions. Joel Greenlee, I see that you wear a lot of comic book related t-shirts. Do you have any favorite characters? Any favorite creators? I'm a huge fan myself and I think it would be lots of fun to hear what you are interested in. 
Related question, do you know of any creators that are Scientologists and have wanted to use comics as a way of possible influence? Hey, thanks for the question. So, um, first off, I'm not aware of any Scientologists who are using the comic book medium or anything like that to get the word out there. Um, so uh, the only creators I've seen Scientology-wise have been here on YouTube where there's a channel called Reckless Tortuga which has uh, a couple Scientologists who, well the, the channel's only, pretty much only Scientologists doing, uh, you know, what they think are very funny videos that I'm sort of, you know, yeah, they're all right. Uh, so there's that. Um, now as far as my comic book uh, fandom goes, I'm actually a big fan of the movies, okay? Uh, Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe, DC Cinematic Universe are what I follow closely. I used to be a comic book reader when I was a teenager and I had a collection and even had them in the cardboard with the, you know, in the plastic bags. But um, I kind of had to sell all those off when I joined staff and, and then uh, they were all gone by the time I joined the Sea Org. And when I came back around after leaving the Sea Org, I kind of looked into comics again and thought, after reading a few and looking into some storylines that it was kind of really, you know, sort of soap operas with superpowers was kind of what comic books had, uh, you know, are and and I didn't I couldn't really get back into them again. It just didn't really get to me, but the movies from Iron Man forward, I have been absolutely enraptured by the Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh Spider-Man Homecoming Ugh, really good addition, and I um, really can't wait for Infinity War Part 1 and 2. So I'd say Stan Lee's really pretty high on my list of, of creators. And then as far as uh, the DC Universe goes, it was going to hell in a handbasket at a very fast rate with uh, Man of Steel and uh, you know Batman vs. Superman. They were not good movies. But Wonder Woman turned all that around. And I'm, I have high hopes for Justice League because Wonder Woman was such quality and such a turnaround for them that I'm hoping that DC has seen the light and is getting rid of Zack Snyder's influence. So we'll see what happens with that. Lena Sith Lady. I was wondering if you have ever done one of those wacky Scientology testimonials that sometimes pop up. For some reason I am intrigued by them and I have no idea why. Nope, I have never been in one of the Scientology testimonial videos that they produce for their events where you see wide-eyed, googly Scientologists saying ridiculous things about how they are now, you know, free of the physical universe and, and they can slow down time and they can see particles in space and they can feel their, you know, thatanic abilities and this sort of thing. I just, no, I just, I never, never was in, in, in any of that. And, I look back on it now and I just can't believe I ever thought that any of that had any validity. Vitamin Dubaya. Why wouldn't they perform services for FBI members? Isn't their goal to save the whole world? No, silly. The goal of Scientology is to make money. That is the goal. Come on. <laughs> Uh, and even within the world of Scientology, the goal is actually to make the able more able. Uh, it is not necessarily to, you know, save the whole world, meaning every person in it, because the world has got millions of suppressive people in it, and Scientology ain't so interested in saving them. So the FBI, for example, all the alphabet agencies, in fact, are all looked at with, sus with suspicion and distrust, and, and Hubbard never had anything good to say about the FBI. And so agents of the FBI and the CIA and the NSA and all these groups are not going to get, uh, you know, allowed to be doing services, nor are their family or, you know, that's just how Scientology doesn't, uh, doesn't like those guys because they know in the past 
that those organizations have worked against Scientology and they think in their uh, sort of paranoid way that those organizations still care very much about Scientology and really want to, you know, do away with it and so they can't trust any of those people. So that's how that works. Okay, and so we've reached the end of another episode. If you have not uh, considered supporting me on this channel, go ahead and please think about doing so. Uh, your help, your support, your love is what keeps this channel going. The best way to do that is to hook up on patreon.com slash chrisshelton and become part of my Patreon support network. Otherwise, um, there is, of course, a uh, blue PayPal button there, and of course, there's also the critical merchandise and uh, buying my book, Scientology A to Zenu, An Insider's Guide to What Scientology is Really All About. Enough said. See you guys next week. Thanks for coming around.